Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I am Johnny Horsley, and today on the show, we got our cool one. We got Casey talking to the one and the only Howard Shaken. Now, if you don't know who Howard is, he apprenticed under Gil Kane, he apprenticed under Wally Wood, and he apprenticed under Neil Adams, and then went on to have an incredible career of his own, working on some of the most influential and amazing stories that, uh, that have come out in the last long time. He's a really cool guy. I got a story about meeting him, I'll tell you after the show. But I don't want to waste any of your time. I want you to get you right in there and have you listen to Casey and Howard in their own words. All right, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have a treat for you guys. This guy has been around in the industry for a little over 40 years. and. We're closer to 50 now. Holy smokes. 1971. We have a guest. Um, You might have heard of him. His name's Howard Chaikin. Howard, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. So, yeah, today has been been nuts, but uh, I'm I'm ready to talk to you. Um, How is it out there, man? Because I live live on the left edge of America. I live, uh, I'm five doors from the water. And um, in in California, I live in a small town about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles, um, a small beach town. And um, as I speak, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm looking to my left. I look out of my backyard. My wife is a is a lush garden. Um, and I'm um, you know I'm 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 locked down. I'm quarantined. I take the quarantine very seriously uh, because I'm old. I'm old, and you know we 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 are constantly masked. I'm going out of my fucking mind to tell you the truth because um, I was talking this this afternoon to a number of colleagues about the fact that I I'm, I'm used to being on an airplane at least twice a month. Um, oh yeah, and um, I have not been anywhere since February. I haven't worn a shirt that, that had a collar in the season of time. I haven't worn a shirt <laughs> I haven't worn socks that weren't white. I haven't worn shoes that weren't sneakers, and um, and I'm, I'm, these are you know these are first world problems of course but we're living in a third world country already so what's that you know yeah that's other than that though despite all that shit i'm pretty good you good know, I'm, good I'm, I'm blessed and lucky to have gotten this old and i'm happy with the life i have and i'm living so there you go that's awesome i um i was listening to um the amy coney barrett interviews today which kind of kind of terrifies me and uh i, I posted about my sexual preferences <laughs> at home and definitely not after a big dinner <laughs> that's that's good words of advice man yeah and, and those are words to live by right? no, mm-hmm. so you you said you've been in the in the business for 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 nearly 50 years my first my first actual job was as an assistant in 1968 um, oh my gosh! I, but my first work under my own name was in 1971, and um, so I've been around the business since I was a boy. You know, you start you start getting thrown out of people's offices at the age of 15 in my generation. I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm a link between my generation and the one that preceded mine. Um, I was I worked for Gil Kane, I worked for Wallace Wood, uh, Gray Morrow, Neil Adams. And um, and I was rabbi to DC by Joe Orlando, who taught me how to navigate the experience and system at DC because DC at that time was run by Carmen Infantino, who despised Gil Kane. 
and I was deeply connected to Joe Kane by by various associations. And um, so my name was Mud at DC as long as Carmine was there. But I got to work, and um, I sucked. Um, I got work under circumstances, <laughs> and I didn't really get any good until I was in my late twenties, early thirties, when I went off and did woodshed and learned how to how to do my job. Um, I I have led an incredibly charmed life. And um, I take nothing for granted. I'm very grateful for the work I've had and the life I've lived. So out of those guys, I mean, you 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 literally worked under some of the, the most revered and uh, most um, just beloved creators from, I guess it would be the golden age sure. of, of comics. And um, what... What's the what's the biggest thing that you took away from that? Discipline. Um, I mean, most of those guys had no respect particularly for the material. They regarded it as a job of work. They woke up one morning and found they've been doing something for fifty or sixty years that they expected to be something they transition out of into something else. But they all had working discipline. And even though I actually never did any actual hands-on work with Gil Kane, I learned how to be a comic regardless from watching him work for over a year. So you can get up in the morning, sit down at his desk, and start working. Just do the job. Uh, there's no waiting, no waiting for a muse, no, no, no process of finding an artistic inspiration. Your job is to just make the stuff. And I did, and I do. That, that is my job. I get up in the morning, and I'm, I'm, you know, when I'm awake, I'm at my desk by about nine, and I start drawing. Um, if I'm writing, I'm doing the same thing, same deal. Uh, I lived a very disciplined life. Uh, a couple of years back, I spent a number of years working at Marvel, flying into New York every six months or so to run workshops and seminars for talent. And the first day was about time management and how to have a career, how to get up in the morning and do your job and take very seriously the fact that you had a responsibility to your client. And um, that sustained me for this long. I mean, I'm, I'm a cult figure. I'm, um, I'm not a, I, I don't, I don't provide fan service in a, in a real way that makes me a beloved figure in the context of comics. Uh, my tastes, my enthusiasms, my interests differ radically from those of my, of the enthusiasts and the time, my colleagues. Um, I'm not interested in, in most of the material that is done by mainstream comics talent and mainstream comic book companies. I can certainly produce it. But it's not my first choice of work that I want to do. So I do whatever I want. And I'm very lucky in that I've been able to do, do that. Not with any huge financial success on my end. My, my financial success drive, having spent 15 years working in television, generating enough of a nest egg and a pension to live the life I've lived. So that, that's where that's at. That's awesome. So I, I'm, I'm guessing the union's taking care of you with. Uh... The writer's guild? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I remain a guild member. You know, I. Uh, I wrote a lot of hours of television, and I have a bad attention. You know, I'm old. I'm set. I turned seventy this this past week. But you're and, you're still getting at it, though. I, I, I saw I, the. Uh, what am I going to do? I, I don't fish. You know, I don't. I don't fucking golf. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like that. You know, I, I my as long as my skill set functions, you know, I'm working, and I'm grateful for the you know for the opportunity to do it. But I'm. But I. I mean, I'd work anywhere. You know, one of the things that one of the one of the things I've learned in this pandemic is that I can do this for free. You know, I'm, I'm generating enough of an income from my pension that I can sit down. I'm not drawing anything. I mean, I've I finished up to issue eleven of Hey Kids Comics, and uh, I'm working on a new project right now that's separate and distinct from that. But you know, I'm I'm productive. I get up and I get through the job. I mean, today today was a kind of a fuck up day. I had a bunch of shit I had to do in the morning, but in the afternoon. I spent four hours getting pages ready to prep, you know, to, to take the next step. And um, it's what I do. Someone asked my wife when I'd be retiring, and she explained that she knew I retired when she heard my head hit my drawing table and without any sound of owl following me. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you nothing to retire to. I'm, you know, my, my, my vocation is my avocation. What I choose to do for a living, what I'm lucky enough to be able to make a living at, is a hobby. The difference, though, is that unlike a lot of my colleagues, who either persist and, 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 and presume and behave as if a hobby, I take very seriously the professional responsibilities to this. The skill sets are that of a hobby, but the work is, is serious. I mean, comics is a 
is a phenomenally stupid thing to do for a living. It's difficult to do well. And, um, and I'm grateful enough that I, I took the time and energy and committed to learn how to do it well. That's my job. So I, um, there's a, a lot of passion that you have to have when you do a job in the creative field. Do you still love it as much as you, as, as you did when you got into it? I love the process enormously. I, I, love, I love the challenge of the puzzle. Uh, I don't read comic books anymore because, frankly, there aren't many comic books out there that interest me. I mean, if, you, if we were on video right now, you would see the, over my shoulder is the, uh, a new book from Sunday, Sunday Press called uh, Gross Exaggerations. At the work of Milk Gross, who's a great cartoonist in the 30s and 40s. That's the sort of stuff I look at these days. Um, but I'm, but I'm a voracious reader of fiction and nonfiction. And, um, and my, my, my passion is, is tempered by the fact that I like the job. I mean, a friend of mine, I, I, I know for a number of years, called me last week and I said, I'm interested in writing a story for it, featuring a franchise character, character I'd never written about. And I said, no, at first. Then I said, okay, what about this? And I sent him a, a two paragraph franchise this morning. And they were delighted. So, you know, what the hell? Something else, something interesting to do. Not going to draw it, just draw it, just write it. And, um, you know, right now I'm working on a sequel to a thing I did a couple of years ago that I'm writing and drawing. And I'm drawing a book written by a writer whose work I deeply respect, who I love working with. I made a promise to myself a couple of years back that I wouldn't work with another writer. But I changed my mind when, when this came along because I like working with him. Uh, oh, that's that's awesome. He's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's the most. He's one of the two most artist-friendly writers I've ever worked with. Really, uh, he understands the real estate of the page in a way that most comic book writers don't. Most comic book writers uh, are literary men or screenwriting men um, who are using comics as a, as a platform and a stepping stone achieve other goals and this guy has already achieved those goals so his comic book work like for all intents and purposes should should be that way but it's not he he understands how small the page is how much time is actually represented by the page and um his drawing his stuff is it's a challenge because he has a different he has a different design system visually than i have but i can accommodate and understand why his design system works it makes sense to me and um, that's what that that's what the relationship of comic book writing is about. I'm going to be doing a uh, a thing for some of the company called Talent Talk. Uh, I've done one already uh, called Paradigm, discussing the the five panel breakdown of the basic page. And the follow up to that is Beyond the Paradigm, which discusses how that how you break out of that and how the impact of of various comics artists over the past hundred years. Have brought what, what they brought to the table. That would include Cliff Sterrett, Frank King, Milton Kniff, Roy Klein, Will Eisner, Harvey Kurtzman, Kirby and Simon. Um, and then that just, these are, these are people who, who thought about this medium as a narrative tool and were beyond, were beyond interested in pretty. You know, when you're a young guy in comics, you're obsessed with the, the Alex Raymond stuff that, that, that fills the, the beauty part. And if you have any, if you develop any sophistication at all, if you develop anything like eyes that go past the beauty, um, you, you move on to stuff like Kniff, like Crane, like, like Starrett and like King, and Garrett Price on Whiteboard, um, where there's picture making, where in the pictures themselves, are not simply posed beauty, but have actual narrative value. That that the, the way the picture is framed, the way the picture is cropped, the way the picture is organized is part of the story itself. It it talks directly to what writing in comics is actually. Um, writing in comics is not the the artist in comics is not an illustrator of the writer's text. The artist in comics is the graphic designer in the service of narrative. And his job is to take an, a frequently literary idea. And translate into a visually narrative format. That's where it's at. Where do you think that most of the writers fall short? Because you you mentioned that this writer was really really good with with artists. What's something that you, you can just look at a comic right now today and go this art this this writer needs this. A writer who doesn't understand 
how small the page is. The page, in the context of comics, space represents time. Okay, the amount of space allotted to a panel is roughly equivalent and direct and, and related to the amount of time involved in the action that's depicted in the panel. And most writers, many writers, don't have uh, an understanding of of the of the of the, the contribution through graphics to writing. For example, most writers tend to regard lettering as a, as no more no, no less than a delivery system for text, and that's just bullshit. Yeah, that breaks a page. Lettering is part of the graphic experience. There are six participants in the comic book page. There's the the editor, the writer, the artist, the letterer, the colorist, and the reader. And the reader has to be considered as part of the flow because the reader is the engine that turns the page. And that your one of your job as a comic book artist is to paginate the material, to organize the pan, the space on each page, and the relationship from pa of panel to panel and page to page, so that the reader has some idea, an interest in turning that page and continuing to go. Um, that that calls for the occasional subjective image um, and some air. You know, many many writers don't understand that artists are not their 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 their, their adjunct. Their um, their extension, they're collaborators in the fifty fifty percent, in frankly a fifty fifty arrangement, because the the artist's job is to take the writer's template and translate it into something that both has visual beauty, graphic narrative strength, and is and is and tells the story, conveys the image. You know, my my job is to take a writer's script and not only make it good looking, but also to, to give it narrative value and I, I use that phrase a lot and and it, it's the sort of, it's like pornography you'll know it when you see it you know? <laughs> um, there's i mean it's it, it's it's a lot of it is about motif you know um i mean i i believe that will eisner was the guy who cracked the code who made it who, who was the first guy to really understand how to translate what the guys were doing on sunday pages in newspapers into the comic book into the, the aspect ratio of the comic book and until Kurtzman comes along in the early 50s, everybody is doing Eisner, including Jack. Um, Eisner is the guy who literally comes up with that idea. And for me, one of the problems with contemporary comics is frequently you see writers seeking to achieve a uh, Kirby Lee effect with Eisner technique. And, um, and for example, Watchmen is, is a book that owes enormously to the grid pattern arrangement of Bobby Kurtzman's work on the war books. And you see frontline combat and two fists of tales. Um, you know, and, 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 and the bottom line further is that, I mean, I, I, I'm a mainstream guy. I don't particularly care for the art school type comic book, but at the same time, I'm not particularly interested in the, in the completely and total conquest of comics by superhero books. <laughs> um, I just don't care about them. It's their, the, they were designed by children for children, and they have long outlived their due date. Um, one of the one of the themes that runs through the second arc of Hey Kids from six to eleven is one of the characters' earnest belief that they will outlive superhero comic books with a complete misunderstanding of how completely and totally the concept of the superhero book has has conquered the comic book business. Yeah, it, it. I think it's a shame too that it seems as if the, it, especially the big two, are determined to keep the same people aging with them and not aging the stories up. Um, that we need to get new readers in, and we also need to get. Uh, we're never, never going to get new readers. That's never going to happen. Uh, the new readers are not going to go to the make those kind of comic books. New readers are reading, reading, uh, you know, manga, they're watching anime. Um, they're, they're looking at material that looks like, like the work they would do. Um, the, the homemade comics movement is where new readers are going to come. And they're not going to be people that are going to want to be, they're going to be, continue to be interested. They're going to outgrow the material eventually. Um, because the, the direct sales market, which was intended originally to save comics and did in its time, has become a colossal millstone around the neck of the material. And what you now have is men in their 50s still reading the same material they read in their 50s. 
And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the comics code infantilized not only the comic book in 1954, but the audience itself. It drove away an audience that would have been interested in more adult material. And when, when that audience came back, they were the undergrounds. And significantly, <clears throat> they were all the guys who had been influenced by Kurtzman. The undergrounds owe a colossal debt to Harvey Kurtzman's mad. Not, the, not, not Feldstein's mad, but Kurtzman's mad. And there were very few guys who, in the undergrounds, were doing adventure material. I mean, Jack Jackson was, was one of those guys. Jack, Jack Jackson got very young. Um, he wasn't a great draftsman, but he had a, a, a really clear idea what the material should be. And his stuff was great. Um, he was doing historical stuff about Texas. And, of course, Corbin um, was doing that material. But Corbin was also excoriated by, 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 uh, by other underground guys. Um, and, you know, I, I actually earnestly believed that my generation would see a rise and a, and a rebirthing of a kind of an EC sensibility, not realizing that there were going to be ways to do superhero comics that had no bearing, no, no resemblance to what Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were doing in the early 60s to the, to the early 70s. Um, it just was beyond our ken, and um, I was I was I was blindsided by the arrival of guys who cared so much about superhero comics, um, who were my age and younger, and I just I didn't know what to make of it. I just didn't, and um, I've never quite recovered. That's yeah, I can I can see how you'd be disappointed in that for sure. Um, I, I regard you among the same class of creators as um, like Alan Moore and. Um, just you know the people that that really broke out strong um right but the difference is alan worked in with material that was very familiar and very accessible to an audience that was primed for superhero comic book um watchman was a cautionary tale but it never achieved what it was supposed to watchman should have literally demolished the very idea of comic book of superhero comic books but instead it was a training manual and it provided a, a, a template and a, and, a, and a blueprint for an entire generation of writers, no artists, but writers, um, to come along and do um, fake, realistic, edgy, grave comic book stories um, that the more realistic they became, the more absurd they became as well. Um, and I mean, I've, I've done these things. It's, you know, because I, frankly, I, I can make a living. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're, the, the influence all comes from Alan. Alan is the only writer in comics who could take a bad artist and make, and make the story work. Um, and I, I mean, they, the fact that Dave Gibbons is a really good artist, but Dave has not created an entire school of guys who draw like Dave Gibbons. But there are a yeah. lot of guys that have been ripping off Alan Moore since 1984. Mm. So... Earlier, you were talking they all, about they all hate him. They all hate him, which I find really fascinating. <laughs> we, you know, we, we talk a great. You know, a lot of a lot of comic book guys sit, sit around talking about how much they worship Stan Lee, and they and they pay no attention to the fact that most modern comic books are have much more of a resonance and a relationship to the work that Alan did on on Watchmen, and Ch and then and Chris Claremont did with Byrne on the X Men, and. Um, you know, Chris is a you know a difficult guy to get along with. I gather, right? I don't know him very well, but there's this entire school of guys, writers out there working in comics, who owe their careers to Alan Moore and Chris Claremont, who speak ill of both men, which I find fascinating. You know, I truly do. I don't think the interview that they had recently with Moore really helped that, and it's it's so silly to me because the man has done so much has done more for comics than, you know, any of those creators would, would ever hope to. He, he literally reinvented um, ways to, to do comic storytelling in some ways, but. I don't think he invented the ways to do them. I think he, he, he took, he, he had a, a very interesting point of view and perspective about conventional comical characters and, um, and ran with it. And um, I mean, the thing about, <clears throat> the thing about Alan, in my, this is my opinion, do with it as you will. Um, like, like Elmore Leonard, another writer that I revere, is both men are, are guys who don't, who, who historically do not, did not outline. And 
as I mean, I was reading Washington well before you were. I was reading it in black and whites because the Xeroxes were being sent to me in California from home. And the thing about Watchmen, the comic book, as an example, is that it, it doesn't end particularly well. And for all the shit being thrown at Zack Snyder for his adaptation of the movie, he solves the internal narrative problem of Watchmen. He creates the problem, puts it in, in Ozymandias' hands, <clears throat> and keeps it internal. The narrative is not something, there's not a, a deus ex machina giant squid coming out of nowhere. Yeah. That it's a, it is a, a, a functional narrative aspect of the, of the material in the story itself. You look at the Swamp Thing saga, the same thing happens. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, in, you know, in, in Elmo Leonard's later novels as well, frequently the, the novels just end. They don't have a, a, a satisfying narrative conclusion. Um, but Alan's, Alan's writing is so extraordinary and his feeling for the material and his love of the characters and his love, his love of the approach to the material is, is, is deep and profound and obvious. Um, and I, and I, I mean, I, I will, I will, I mean, I, the only, the only comics I've read in the past couple of months that I gave a shit about were, were, uh, his, his collaboration with, with Kevin O'Neill, um, Cinema Purgatorio. And I'm, re- and I just recently reread the pile of, uh, of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because I love that stuff. I'm a big fan of Kevin O'Neill's as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. I, I was wondering you, earlier, you mentioned that the, the reader was the engine that turns the page. When you write, do you make allowances for that? Do you, um, do you make allowances for that tactile experience? How do you mean? What's that? As in, write it in a way that gives the most bang for your buck in terms of like the reader, you know, having to move around on the page to follow the story. Um, because well, this, this is all material that I cover in, in, in the paradigm. Lecture. Um, but I'm also, I'm a great believer in pagination and the, and the organization of information. Um, I mean, for example, um, you, you cannot put a surprise on an odd numbered page. Surprises are for even numbered pages. If you open a comic book, you'll see what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, this may seem logical and, and obvious to anybody, but you'd be surprised. Uh, it's one of the reasons why back in the days when there were ad flats, I would do everything I possibly could to know what the ad flat of the book that I was working on was going to look like so I could paginate and work around those ad flats. Um, I still, I mean, I've worked with index cards for laying out a story for for all my entire writing life. And one of the lessons I learned early on was never to number your index cards before you've got them all written up. You number them after they're finished, not before. You order, organize them in a pattern that makes sense, but frequently you'll find that that pattern can be adjusted and moved around. You can move, move scenes, make adjustments. Um, so I'm very, very interested and committed to the idea of pagination. I also believe that it's worth making it a point to include one at least one subjective image per page to, to connect with the reader, to make eye contact with the reader, to remind the reader that, he, that he's part of the experience. Um, but that's an artist's choice. Yeah. And you, you do both. And uh, so what you started out as an, as an artist, what yeah. got you into the actual writing aspect of, of creating comics? Well, one of the reasons one of the reasons I got work under false pretenses, despite the fact that I sucked, was that I did a lot of the writer's job for them. I mean, for example, um, I I did all the breakdowns and everything I did working with uh, with, with Danny O'Neill on on Fafford and the, and the Ironwolf stuff. And he, he I never got a paycheck for him to write, but I did the breakdown. In terms of the Star Wars adaptation, I broke that script down into six issues. Roy never saw the any had, had no idea what I was getting until he saw. The pages that I delivered in pencil. Um, I, I realized at that point that I was doing so much of the writing as it was because I recognized how much of the writing was visual, and that frankly I was smarter and more fun than most of those guys. I could I, I, I had a pretty. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I look I, back in the old days. I was a bar drinker, and and I'm really good in, in a room. I'm a good chatterbox, and I, I taught myself to write, and I taught myself to have a narrative voice, um, and that's just the way it is. You know, I'm, I'm I don't. I don't congratulate myself for being the best writer or the best artist. It's the synergy of the two techniques. It's the synergy of the two disciplines together that make my work work. Um, I'm, I'm not a great cover artist. I'm not a great 
script or but but the two things together it's the it's the putting together of my words my visuals together that make me the talent that i am and that give me value if you will that's that's one thing you were you were talking about how you were having to do you know most of the story writing as it was it's one thing that's always kind of rubbed me wrong about like the i guess the marvel mode of i will i will not work that uh, I, had, I had one brief experience working that way a couple of years ago, and I find it awful. I, if I'm going to work with a writer, I need that full script. Even if I rebuild the the narrative approach from ground up, the the, the Marvel style is just it's it's. I think it's laziness. I truly do. Uh, my yeah. script when I I mean I'm when I write for myself when I write for I haven't lived in pencil in thirty years. So when I when I write it when I'm writing and drawing a book. My scripts are very, very deep, deep, deeply detailed. Not, not as detailed as Alan Moore's, but I, I, my detail is in the, in the amount of size and shape. For example, my Italy across the page in width, one quarter of the page in height, and describing the amount of space involved with the picture. Now, I'm going to be doing this, this 10 page story for this friend of mine who called me up and asked me for this, for this franchise down. And I'll be very curious to see it because it's, I'll be working with an artist I don't know. Um, and, um, I'm going to give him the same, Specificity of image and page that I give myself than anyone else, and I'll see whether that'll fly. That'll fly. I don't. Know. Again, it's a franchise, so I don't really care. I have no, I have no dog in that fight. But if it's me, I own it, you know. And, and I, and I, 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 I feel, I feel I've done this enough and, and long enough that I can that my dog that my dogmatic attitudes justify themselves. That's uh. <laughs> You were talking about you. You don't like doing franchises that much. I, I recently saw you. I have no problem doing them. I just I, I don't. I don't feel I'm the best guy to do them. Mm-hmm. I saw your Spider-Man Marvel snapshots number one, and it, you're hitting on all cylinders. I love it, and uh, it seems like like some guys who've been around in the business as long as you have, um, their their line work isn't as uh, as clean as it used to be. Um, and man, you still got it. It's very kind of you to say. It's, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I was surprised that to see you doing a Spider-Man comic. And then I, I saw it and saw what the story was. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And, well, uh, it was, like, it was an interesting process. Um, you know, I mean, I, Kurt, Kurt approached me. I have no idea why they asked me to do this. I just have no clue. I had a great time doing it. It was, uh, you know, I mean, I'm going to say something that make, make me say, it's a lot easier to do work for Marvel than it is to do, do, to do for, doing that sp- snapshots book is a shitload easier to do than any issue of Dark of Divided States of Hysteria or Hey Kids Comics. Now, the demands I make of myself in, in the work that I do, I get more, they're difficult. They're, they're just harder to do. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the demands of a superhero comic book, there, there are so many proscribed tropes there's so many specific elements that are required the, the the obligatory approach to the material that you know i it's it's easier to do but i'm i'm not i'm look i if you've read the book you see what i've done and you know that the superhero stuff in it is is background yeah yes yeah, very minimal it's its function is to demonstrate that this this shit is happening around these two these two MOOCs you know and one one of them wants to be a criminal, one of them doesn't. And there's a there's a sister involved. And it and it's the nineteen eighties and I just I had a great time doing it. I truly did. It looks you know, like I, it. You know, I, I mean I like I I like drawing those characters. I like I like that world. And um and it was just, it was just I mean it was it, it was goofy fun that wasn't a goof, if that makes any sense. It take it, I took it very seriously, I approached it as a as a very serious job of work. And it was also, I have to say. Great to work with Ken Brusenak, the best letterer in comics, and to go back and to have at, 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 at in, in, in partnership with Jesus Alborca, who is, we are twin sons of different months. I love this guy's work so much. Um, we, we first became acquainted when I was working on Blade at Marvel. We worked together on a lot of stuff. And the fact that he was available, because he's, not, he's under, under exclusive at Marvel right now, the fact that he was available to do this was a joy. The guy was covering my coloring on the Hey Kids comic stuff now and on Times Square and was going to be coloring the new book I'm working on. 
is an apprentice and acolyte of Gustavo of, 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 of Jesus, who's named Gustavo Yin. And Gustavo is fantastic. He's just great. He's he's a he, he's a departure from from, from Jesus, but with a, a great sense of drama and color. And what Jesus is, Jesus is just the guy who recognizes the fact that comic book coloring is a storytelling element. It creates atmosphere. The sequences that take place inside the uh, the, the subway train the subway platform. It's just a blast. I mean, you can really smell that train. <laughs> it's really splendid. I'm really digging it. You know, and uh, and and again, the 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 summertime sequence at the end. It's just he he really managed to convey an atmosphere, a place, a period. It's just it's dynamic. I'm I'm incredibly lucky to have both those guys on my team. I um. Do you do you miss living over uh, east on the east coast? Because that's where you grew up, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned I, I I turned I turned seventy on the seventh of October. Oh, ha- happy birthday! Thank you. And on the sixth of October, nineteen eighty-five, the day before I turned thirty-five, I le- I left New York for the last time to move to California. I've been back. I, I go back pretty regularly, but I became a Californian on the sixth of, no, of October, nineteen eighty-five. So I spent literally half my life in Southern California. And uh, as I said in a post I put on Facebook, um, I'm I'm a Californian, but I'm also a New Yorker. I'm permanently. And um, the city I left behind, I left because two two really important reasons. One, the least important was the weather. The summers and the winters were kicking my hands. But more importantly, I realized, this is in 1984, like these, these conclusions, that as popular and as, as, as well-received as Flag was, it was not a, a big commercial hit. I was reaching maybe a quarter of the number of people who were buying Batman comics, the Dark Knight book, the, the, you know, Ronan Watchmen, all this other stuff. I wasn't really reaching that big an audience. I was reaching a quarter of those people. And that I had no prospect. That at 34, at that point, in 35 when I moved, I didn't expect to live to be fat past 50, but I knew there was a potential that I might, and I did not want to find myself in a position of living in New York in an apartment that I couldn't afford to live in, living on cat food. And I had to find some other, other income stream. And I had some interest in me in comic, in, in, in me as a talent and hobby. I came out west, and I became a television writer for a couple of years. And, I, and that saved my life, because I've never been a commercial success in comic. I've never made, I never made anyone near the big money in comic. Um, the money in comics is made by providing fan service, and I'm not a fan service guy. You know, the, it's not a guarantee of, of success, but a really good route is to find yourself a character that, that, that's reasonably popular or has untapped potential and run with it for an audience that wants to have that character be beloved by, 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 by a comic book artist as much as they do. <clears throat> and that's what fan service is about. And I'm not interested in doing that. I never had that. I don't share the audience's enthusiastic patterns or tastes. You know, I, I mentioned to someone recently that my feeling was hurt. Well, I have one feeling left. It's really good. That <laughs> um, I wasn't asked to participate in the, in the Detective 1000. And of course, I remembered that it might have gotten back to the DC that I frequently described Batman as to be about a rich guy who had a bad day when he was eight. You know? And um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't really, really care that much. You know? And, um, it, and it shows, and it shows in the relationship I have to the audience. The audience is frequently hostile to me. I've had, you know, very negative responses, as you know, about the body states of hysteria, um, by, from people who didn't read the book. And they simply drew conclusions based on their own prejudices. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I, I that, 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 all that did was enhance my contempt for, the, for their lack of commitment and, the, and their, their lack of conviction. Um, so, you know, I, I recognize the fact my tastes, my enthusiasms, my my choices of narrative are embarrassing to a profound extent to the comic book audience, which wants to be pandered to, it wants to be flattered for its taste, it wants to be told that it's okay to be 50 and still reading stories about guys running around in nests and caves. And that's the result of that infantilizing that I've mentioned earlier about the comic code. And um, I'm just not that interested. I mean, the weird thing is, of course, is that I'm I'm too weird for the mainstream, and I'm but also too mainstream for the weird. I mean, a couple of years back, I was a guest at a convention in, uh, in, in Buenos Aires, and the only other mainstream guy who was supposed to be there backed out the last the day before the show started was Kevin O'Neill. 
I, I finally forgave him. He left me high and dry, surrounded by these art school comics people, this art Spiegelman crap. I've never been treated with such utter contempt by a bunch of cockpits. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> and my, my wife is utterly indifferent to this. And the irony was at one point we were sitting at dinner and these two these Spanish cartoonists were discussing me in Spanish. And, and of course, I'm fluent in Spanish. Um, and I just, you know, I explained to them they had no fucking right to make judgments about me knowing nothing about me or where I was. What? What? <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, you know, it's there's there's a there's a profound condescension um, from from the art school guys, the mainstream stuff, because the assumption is, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pals with Gary Groth, but but every so often you have to basically remind Gary that it's not all just a superhero junkie. You know, so there you go. I mean, you you got a lot of flack for that that book, and it was really unfair. And then you just come back a year later and drop your dick on the table with Hey Kids Comics and everybody I have not heard one bad thing about that comic everybody loves it I, I mean the fact it, of the matter is it's, it, it, the book is a I have heard bad things about it when I put the word out a year before I did it it's for anecdotes from everybody which pissed me off enormously it was every single thing I heard from everyone was a settling of scores and I actively did not want to do a settling of scores and of course, somebody complained about the fact that, um, you know, I, I was not kind to Stan, you know, you know, please. I mean, I don't, I don't, he doesn't need my kindness. You know, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, the second arc, the second arc, um, which runs from six to 11, um, is, starts in 1950 and ends in 1980. And it's a bit more linear. And it's about the three generations, the four generations, actually. It starts with the golden age guys. And there's that brief, very small generation born between 38 and 40. Um, and then there's my generation, we're all born between 47 and 51. And then there's the guys that were born in, you know, in, in 55 and 60. And, um, you know, my, my generation gets a little bit lost in there. You know, I mean, you said earlier that, you know, I'm still in the game. A lot of it is the fact that guys in my generation were, took a lot of stuff for granted. And you woke up one morning and discovered, oops, no. The only other guy in my generation that's doing work that's not a parody of itself is Walter Simonson. Simonson's a couple years older than I am. And he's doing just breathtaking work. In the service of something that doesn't interest me, I don't really care about North mythology. But the work is fucking amazing. That book is solid. I love um, it. Oh, fuck. Dude. It's just great. You know, and Walter's an old fucker. You know, <laughs> and I'm I'm old. He's really old. You know? <laughs> I mean, and, and people shit all over Neil Adams a lot recently. And uh, I I'm looking at what Neil's been doing lately. And Neil's Neil's got ten years on me, okay. And and his work has gotten a bit more baroque, certainly, but the drawing is still there. He can draw like a son of a bitch. Holy shit! You know, you can't you cannot take away from the fact that this guy is a master of drawing. It's just, a, just an astonishing talent, you know. Pain in the ass, but so am I. You know, <laughs> you know he's, he's he's still he's probably still got it. He's really got it. Stuff is just terrific. You know, he um he seems to have had a big impact on comics without having been in comics for for too long. Seems like a, he he went into advertising and. Did uh, I guess made the rest of his career out of that? Am I correct? No, I mean Neil. Remember Neil got started in, in as a he was an assistant. He was an assistant on Batman, the comic strip drawn by Howard Nordstrom. Um, he was he, he did a, he did a, the Ben Casey comic strip before he turned twenty one, and he did a lot of work with Johnson and Cushing. Johnson and Cushing was a an advertising agency that used comic strips as advertising medium. Um, they, you know, go back to the 1940s, uh, working in Milton Kinnett and Noel Sickles, working under the name of Paul Victor, which is their middle name, um, produced a bunch of ads for them. Neil did. My first experience with Neil's work was in Weekly Reader and Scholastic Magazines, where he did these, the GE ads. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he worked in comics for a long time. He really did. I mean, um, what, I mean, when I, when I was a kid, 
in, in the late 60s as a teenager, um, you know, you had Skaranko and Neil, Neil Adams. And uh, they were just basically really eccentric out there talents just doing nutty shit. And Saranko disappeared. Saranko's, you know, basis in my reputation with three and a half years. But Neil stuck around. Neil kept working. You know, his, his work on, you know, on, on, on Superman, on his cover work, on the Avengers, on the X-Men. You know, it, it's pretty impressive work. It's, it, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's, he comes and goes. Sure. But the work is pretty impressive. You can't take it away from him. Who's, who's the one guy from, from the golden age from like, talking you know back before uh neil and and all that Who, who's the one guy you think people these days need to need to study more than anyone else that's a tough question um there's there's also also the different different lessons to be learned um i think mac rayboy doesn't get the attention he deserves rayboy was the the original principal artist on captain marvel jr um the influence he had on on Gil, and Woody cannot be overstated. Um, Reed Crandall's work, um, like particularly on Blackhawk, was staggering. But Reed, Reed Crandall's cover on on Blackhawk and military and then modern and police uh, were just amazing. I mean, he was the best cover artist working in the Golden Age. Um, I love Kurtzman's stuff. I love Toad's stuff. Um, I don't consider Johnny Craig a Golden Age guy, but Johnny Craig is sort of in that middle era. In the early 50s, but I learned how to draw clothing from Johnny Craig. Um, I love Craig. I love Craigstein, uh, Toth, and Kurtzman. You know, I mean, one of the things I'll be doing in the in the in the second version of the paradigm thing is talking about about Kurtzman and his introduction of the ballad form into comic book narrative. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not interested in drawers and draftsmen. I like guys who do a whole package. That's why I love what Kurtzman did. I love the the influence that Kurtzman had on John Severin. From the war books that they were given on the Western stuff. Um, you know, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I personally had, did not like Will Eisner personally, but I acknowledge that the work that he did, uh, both on the spirit and as the, 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 the uber talent, the overview talent at quality comics in the 1940s was the, 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 the linchpin watermark of that time. But I like lots of stuff. I mean, I, I don't own any comic art on my walls, but my walls are covered with, with all sorts of illustrations, you know. Um, above my desk over here, I have a, a Dean Cornwell uh, Contiprayon drawing from the, from the Eastern Airlines mural. Over my, my my fireplace to my right, I have a Robert Fawcett. And I have a Robert Fawcett behind me. Um, I like to look at guys who whose pictures have 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 storytelling quality to them. That's what illustration is for me. And um, you know, so and when I get up in the morning, you know, I don't do warm up. My warm up is the work that I'm doing. But I look at all sorts of stuff, so it's it, you, you never know. Um, I'm, I'm I, I I still enjoy the process. Like I say, I like I like the idea of solving the problem that comic books gives you as a talent. I truly love that. So, given um, given how the comics, uh, just the format right now is, is going, the industry is kind of in a slump. Things are going to change. It's going to be a hard change, I think. Where do you think that um, independent and specifically like adult uh, mature reader comics are going? Um, do you think that floppies are going to go the way of the buffalo? Or well, I don't. I I, I I've had a lot of people. We've been talking a lot about models, about what 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 is going to be done, what can be done, and how it can be done. Um, and I really don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm not a prognosticator. I don't I don't know where things are going. But it seems to me that the the price point model for floppies is is, is not is not is not there anymore. It's just gone, and that that the the logical approach would would likely be um, digital first and then collecting and trade paperback. That, that yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and I think Conway um, kind right. of I, I, I know I, that was a great great piece that Jerry did. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys work together when you were in Hollywood, when you were doing the uh, no, television we writing? Pads. We crossed paths, but never really worked together. He's a great guy. I, I really enjoyed talking to him a few months back. Uh, seemed, seemed like a, a really genuine dude. Oh, he really is. Um, I, I, I'm also wondering, um, just 
given the the breadth of your work, do you have anything now that that you're the most proud of, or is it you know yet to come? Uh, I don't know about yet to come. I mean, I I I'm proud of the, I'm proud of the fact that I was able to take a, a middling ten yet ten years of the beginning of my career and turn it into something that had value because I had no value at all in that first ten years. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a living example of that, of the fact that this can be learned and can be taught. And that, and that, that's really where my, my pride lies. Well, that, that's one thing I, I've, I, I help run a, um, a, a comic book uh, or a comic like group on, on the internet. And we get writers and artists together and we make short comics, which can be told in one page, six panels, max, um, and it's, it's all about learning how to tell stories, you know, just cutting the fat, cutting the bullshit and telling the best story you can in six panels. Um, and uh, I see the work that our artists do. And it's, it's like watching a bodybuilder at the gym. It, it's constant work and it blows my mind. And it's, there's so much discipline that has to be, you know, learned uh, through, you know, back is bashing your freaking head against the wall every day. Um, what, what do you do when it just shit's just not working? I don't work. Really? Really? You, you, what do you do to separate yourself? Do you, do you, there are days and there are fewer now than they used to be. There used to be days where I forget how to do what I did for a living. Um, and those days I I learned a long time ago that, that you can't make it happen if it ain't happening. So you, you can't force it? <laughs> Not at all. What what do you what do you do to relax now? I well before I before I got on this, I spent the afternoon I was doing I'm 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 in the process of doing doing blue line polish on the last eight pages of this new book I'm working on right now. And I was listening to Johnny Hodges, who was a great alto saxophone player with the with the New Gallagher Orchestra from the thirties to the sixties. Um I'm a I'm a reader. You know, I'm, I'm going to, as soon as I get off with you, my wife is making dinner, which is unusual thing because I've been doing most of the cooking for most of this pandemic because I like to control that environment because I'm in control. Um, but I'm going to end up watching Fargo tonight, the latest episode, and catch uh, maybe the, se- the, the first episode of this mini series about John Brown starring Ethan Hawke. I've been wanting to check that out. The Good, Lord, the Good Lord Bird, I think. Is that the name of it? Yeah. I have not yet. The Good Lord Bird. I have not seen it. I'm very curious. Yeah, I, I definitely want to check that out. And uh, my my wife and I have been watching uh, Lovecraft Country, and I, I I try to like it. I couldn't get into it. I, I'm not a, I'm not a monster guy. I just don't. Oh, like for it. real? <laughs> it, it's I, I've enjoyed it. Um, and in terms of showing. Um, kind of giving examples of like the current ills of society without being didactic, right. uh, you know, I- examples through, you know, actions in the story. It's fantastic. And I, I think it could, I think it could be taught in class. It's, it's that well done. You don't feel like you're being preached to. You're like, Oh, well, shit, I mean, that's what, what, got me, what got me to watch the show is I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of journey Smollett. Um, oh, she's amazing. I, I was a, um, I, I love Friday Night Lights, um, and I'm not a sports guy. You know, um, that's just good storytelling. Friday Night Lights was the 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 best, the, the most perfect example of a dem- of a of a depiction of a of a, a middle class marriage uh, I'd ever seen on television. And um, I like Kyle Chandler. I, li- I like Connie Britton, and and I thought the fact that even even everybody on the show the, these were these are 25 year old high school sophomores and shit, but. Um, I really dug the show and, 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 and she was, she was terrific on it. When I heard when you just said that you liked Friday night lights, I had the same um, reaction when I heard that, uh, uh, God, the, the German director with the crazy voice. Jim Benders? No, 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 no. Uh, he, I'm sorry. Randall Fassbender? No, no. Um, he did the, he does voiceover a lot and he was in the new star Wars show crap i don't know what you mean uh hold on one second he um he did a lot of uh documentaries and um he has he has a terrifying voice 
Werner Herzog. Okay, sure. Yeah. When when you told me that you like Friday Night Lights, I got the same feeling that I got when I heard that Werner Herzog liked WWE wrestling. <laughs> It's like, oh, wow. I would have never expected that. Have you ever heard Paul F. Tompkins do Werner Herzog? Oh, yes. Yes, on his podcast. I I mean, holy shit. It just... (laughs) I love Paul F. Tompkins anyway, though. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I I really miss about At Midnight, that that show with Chris Hardwick, although I loathe Hardwick. I I love the opportunity of seeing three new comedians every night. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm not. I have no patience with stand-up stuff. I like, can't spend an hour watching stand-up stuff. But I really, I, I got to like Ali, uh, Ali Wong, and Paul F. Tompkins, and uh, and a whole bunch of Kurt, Kurt Bonhoeffer, um, all all these young guys um, who who I didn't have. They they couldn't sustain my interest for an hour, but were really good in a half-hour format of yelling at each other, which I thought was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, listen, I it's time for me to end, end this. I'm hoping you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah, dude. I I don't want to keep you from from dinner and uh, <laughs> be fed by my beautiful wife. That's awesome. Nice. I've I've appreciated your time. Thank you so I much. Had a great time. You, you you've been thoughtful and kind, and I'm most grateful for the attention. That's no bullshit. Okay. I, I appreciate you, man. And I love, uh, I, love I love the story about that 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 that, that Bob, Bobby Bobby Cool thing. That just killed me. I'm I'm still irritated about that. <laughs> <laughs> Know that you amuse an old man. Let, let, let that be the joy to it, okay? Well, I, I'm glad I at least got that accomplished with that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've talked shit enough about anybody that's going to make me want to take anything else. I think we're good. Yeah, well, God, God forbid anything like that comes up, let me know. Um, and uh, I, I can't wait to see what uh, what project you're coming up with next. Because uh, right. I really enjoyed that Spider-Man. It was fantastic. It's very kind of you to say. Thanks so much. Have a great day, yes? Right. Same to you. Take it easy. Bye now. back wasn't that awesome man howard's a cool guy i really awesome he came i didn't think we were gonna get him to come on the show but we got him to come on and and casey and him had a great time now funny story about howard not only funny but my my story for howard uh back in comic-con of 2004 i think it was i was out in san diego and i knew who he was i knew his work i loved his work um he's done some really cool batman stories that i liked a lot um some kill raven stuff some stuff I, i really enjoyed and so I was very much aware of, of who he was. And we're just walking around Comic-Con, and all of a sudden we're walking, I think it was by the DC booth, or one of those booths, and we were just sitting there at this table, uh, this booth. Um, nobody was around, and he was had some flyers out or stuff out for a new book he was, I can't remember what the book was at the time. Uh, just some stuff sitting around, and uh, I just walked up and started chatting with him, and oh, it was, it was, sorry, flyers and some, some uh, trading cards, right, for the whatever the new book he was on. And uh, he would just sign him and hand him out, and I, there was nobody around, so I walked up, and I... You got him to sign me a, a trading card thing, which I still have over my box of signed cards. And uh, he, you know, we sat and talked to him about comics for a little bit. You know, I spent something good, like five, ten minutes about it with him. And uh, it was, it was really great. He was an awesome, awesome dude to talk to. And uh, I've always remembered that as one of my happenstance, event, uh, you know, meetings at Comic Con of, you know, this legendary creator Howard, Howard Chaykin, or any, anybody. You know, I don't even know if I'm saying his last name right, but I was, I've always said Chaykin. Um, watch it be totally wrong. But anyways, if it is, I'm sorry. Uh, anyways, that's a show. Uh, if you like that, if you like hearing us talk to people, go over to spoilerverse.com and check out all of the other back issues we have. And check out all of the other podcasts on our show, like Like Bridge and the Geek who does a bunch of news and breaking news stuff, or Music Print Radio, who's all about music. Nerd from the Crypt, which is Porter stuff. Funny Book Forensics is all about deep diving into comics you love, and so much more. Uh, if you want to hear something cool here for the month of December, we've got a uh, beer advent calendar that Kaylee and I are doing over on Happy's Adventure, so go check that out. It's a lot of fun. It'll be short, quick episodes, but it'll be one a day for um, the month of December, so it'll be, it'll be pretty cool. All right, guys. Lastly, not lastly, but now I want to tell you about the website. Go to spoilers.com, read all the articles, make comments, go to the store, buy some shit, look cool. Go to scpod.us slash discord and join our public discord server, scpod.us slash discord, and join it up. And lastly, 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 in Oceans of Podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu can do, open the mind. <laughs>